Amen. Wasn't that just beautiful? Yeah. So I have to be honest, nobody told me that was happening until this morning. Um, because as you know, you should never follow kids or animals. <laughs> and uh, I think you guys have already been preached to, you know. Jesus said, if you accept the kingdom of heaven like one of these little ones. In fact, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you do. Um, and what a spirit and, and what a joy and what a love for the Lord that they exhibit. And that's so beautiful to see. So praise God. Well, amen. Um, you know, we often hear uh, uh, that experience is the best teacher. And I recently came across uh, an extreme version of this quote. It said this. It said, experience is the best teacher, and the worst experiences teach the best lessons. And uh, it wasn't attributed to anybody. I don't know where it came from, um, so I couldn't find out. But it appears the earliest known version of this idea uh, about experience comes from Julius Caesar. And he's quoted um, as saying this. He said, uh, ut est rerum omnium magister usus. And he spoke Latin. What did you expect? Uh, so, Loosely translated, it means experience is the teacher of all things. And um, I'm sure some of you learned the same thing growing up, that the best way to learn things was through experience. And it's a wonderful reminder that when we get saved, we have to throw out all the worldly wisdom <laughs> and ground ourselves in the truth of God's word because the Bible doesn't teach that. Learning by experience is certainly not um, what the Bible encourages, right? That was the lie of Satan, that if you ate of the fruit of the tree of what? Good and evil. If you learned and experienced the darkness side, you would be like God. And that is not what God intended for mankind. No, the Bible teaches that true understanding and wisdom comes from knowing the Creator. He who created us and made all things is the one who intends to teach us all things. And so what we need to do is pursue God and His wisdom and His righteousness. And Proverbs 9 tells us plainly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And other scriptures affirm this, like Psalm 119, it promises great understanding. It says that we will have greater understanding than even our teachers when we meditate on the testimonies of the Lord. And so the really wise prefer to learn not from experience, but from humbly coming to our Lord. And part of what we get in his word is actually the opportunity to learn from the experience of others. And that is much of what uh, the Word of God offers us, right? Uh, as we read these tales of these godly men of faith who came before us. And that is absolutely what we have been doing as we go through the book of Peter. We have been looking at the lived experiences of Peter and what it can teach us. And I always like to say, when you read the Bible, you should ask yourself three questions. The first question is, what does this, this scripture tell us about God? That's the most important thing, right? It's what the word of God is all about. It's, it's God's revelation of himself. Secondly, what does the scripture tell us about us? Because in that, God is telling us about us and who we are. Um, and then lastly, what does the scripture tell us about my relationship to this God? Um, and those are the three things we always want to keep in mind. And those are what Peter has been sharing to us, right? So much of the book of... Peter that we've been reading is Peter's lived experiences as he walked with the Lord. 
And this is particularly true as we get to chapter five. Last week, Daniel walked us through Peter's appeal as an elder to fellow elders. Um, Didn't you enjoy last week? Wasn't that uh, a wonderful sermon as Daniel preached to himself um, as the senior elder here at this church? You know, um, it's also great to be the senior elder. He gets to preach, and then he ends by saying, and Ben's gonna tell you how to be humble next week. So, okay, great. (laughs) So we're gonna... (laughs) Take this week to learn how to be humble. But, but as, as, as Daniel preached to himself and the lessons we can learn from him as a senior elder and the heart that God has, has, has given him for this body. And uh, the reminder, most of all, the most important reminder came at the end uh, as Peter described his subjection to the chief shepherd as an elder and how we as elders must subject ourselves to the chief shepherd Um, and then the promise of receiving the unfading crown of glory. You know, Peter had seen and walked with the chief shepherd. He had seen Jesus' tenderness. He had been led by his guidance, and he had experienced Jesus' rebuke on multiple occasions. And so, in other words, he had experienced both the rod and the staff of the great shepherd. And what Peter is about to teach us is is that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we call this life, right? The one thing or the two things guaranteed are taxes and death. And so all of life is like walking through the valley of the shadow of death. The shadow of death is always upon us. And Peter says, as we do so, we will experience God's grace as we submit ourselves to the rod of correction and permit ourselves to be led by his staff of direction. Peter, in these verses, is going to call this grace, that this is the grace of God, his correction and direction in leading us through this life. Um, And so with that, we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 5, as Peter describes to us his understanding of the chief shepherd. He said this, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder um, that you care for us, Lord God. Father, that... This is an exercise in coming to understand better the love and the care that you had for your people, that you sent your son to pay the price for our sins, that we may be reconciled into relationship with you as our chief shepherd to oversee all that we do, Lord God, guiding us by your rod and your staff as you lead us through this life and bring us into into the promise that is your eternity. Father, I pray this day that this word would stir our hearts, Lord God, to allow ourselves to be humbled in your presence as uh, only your spirit can do. We thank you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's fascinating that Peter begins this section, chapter verse five, with the word likewise, um, because you wouldn't expect it, right? He's been talking to a completely different group of people. He started out last week in verses one through four talking to the elders, uh, and then all of a sudden he switches, and now he's talking to the younger generation. And we're going to see in the next sentence, as we just read, that it isn't intended to exclude the rest of us, but he's just particularly in this first section um, addressing himself to the younger generation, who often tends to be the the brasher 
um, part of the congregation, and he's encouraging them, right, to have a listening ear. But he says, likewise. And how are those who are uh, to be shepherded likewise to act like those who are the shepherds? It seems almost contradictory, and yet that is how he begins. And, and if you stop and think about it, it's a wonderful reminder that the Bible is always most concerned about the matters of the heart, that it doesn't differentiate in what your role or your position or your title is or you know, anything else, all the differences, as, as the Bible says. There's neither male nor female. There's, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek in the kingdom of God. And those differences of age do not change our responsibility before the Lord because what God cares about is the heart. And what he is encouraging in the young people is that just as the shepherds are supposed to shepherd you with a particular heart, your reception of that should be with the same heart. And if we go back and look, what is that heart meant to be? Well, he used words like willingly and eagerly. So you are to be hungry for the correction that comes from the elders. He reminded us that we need to recognize that we do this under the watchful eye of God. That submitting yourself to your elders is in all reality submitting yourself to the order that God has created. And then he ended, as Daniel ended us last week, with the reminder that it comes with a promise. That as we submit ourselves under God's unfading eye, the promise is for the reception of an unfading crown of glory, as Daniel ended last week. And Daniel beautifully reminded us that it's okay to pursue the promises of God that those gifts are, are to be pursued and desired. It's a good thing. And as he says, I look forward to the crown of glory that the Lord has promised those who are elders in his church. And that should be the same for, for all of us, right? The Bible strictly warns us uh, against personal ambition, but it encourages us to have godly ambition. And that is a good thing. And I, I want to report, by the way, that we see that amongst our young adults. You know, I have the privilege of spending Thursdays with the young adults in this church, and I have to tell you how encouraging it is to hear their hunger for the things of God. And we've been uh, going through the book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation, an ongoing challenge is to have a heavenly mindset, right? You, you, we often hear the lie that you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you know earthly good. Well, the Bible teaches the opposite that you will never be earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. Um, and I see that in our young adults. And I, this week I asked the question, as I will from time to time, it says, who has thought about heaven this week? Um, because yeah, it's a wonderful thing to remember to, to put our eye uh, upward and remember the promise of where we all get to be in eternity with our Lord. But I had a second question for the group this week. And that question was, what do you look forward to in heaven? And I have to tell you, one of the young ladies just answered in a way that has haunted me all week. She says, as I walk along this earth, I'm just bothered by how much just doesn't seem right, right? That I constantly say to myself, this just doesn't seem right. And she said, I just look forward to never having that feeling again. Wow, that's a powerful thought, where everything is just right. And I've just been so encouraged by that. What a change to our psyche to be in a place with no more pain or mourning or fear, where there's no reminder of the brokenness that we see in this world, no anxiety of failure. And this 
should motivate us to pursue that unfading crown of glory because heaven is part of that. And to remember the promises of God that say we can begin to experience and live that here on this earth, which is what we're going to be exploring today. Jesus said when he began to preach that the kingdom of heaven is upon us. Now, of course, we can't experience the fullness of it because this world is still broken. But we can experience a taste of it. We, we can learn to not be anxious about anything, but in all things, bring our prayers to the Lord, right? And the peace of God will overwhelm us. To the extent possible, we can learn to be at peace with, with all of fellow mankind. To the extent that it's up to us, the Bible says, that is our responsibility. And, and it is possible um, to not live in the anger and the bitterness and the resentment that we see all around us because we can be overwhelmed by the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And we can experience these things as we pursue wisdom in knowing him. And so with the same spirit, with the same expectation, the Bible says, you who are younger, subject yourselves to the elders. And then Peter is going to explain what that submission looks like. And he's going to make a broader appeal. And he's going to include all of us in this, in his call to humility. He says, the means of experiencing the grace of God is humility. For anyone who wants to experience the grace of God, Peter gives us this very important instruction Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And then he ends with this. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Man, that is a loaded statement. I mean, the implications of this are unbelievable. You know, it's one thing to understand that I'm a sinner and I'm under the judgment of God. But that's kind of a neutral position, right? Judges judge based on the law. You broke the law, you get a ticket. You broke the law, you go to jail. It's nothing personal. But God says here, the prideful, it's personal. And he will resist and oppose the prideful. That is a strong warning. And it sounds like something best to be avoided. And so the encouragement is to wrap ourselves in humility as if it's clothing. But it leaves open that question. What is humility? And what is pride? Too much of what passes for humility in this world is often just another form of pride, to be honest with you. It's a false humility that we see all around us. Right? My favorite example is self-deprecation. Self-deprecation is not humility. It's a form of pride. It's another way to say, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm so unworthy. It's not humility. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard this before, but humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. And that's absolutely true, but I want to take it to another level, right? Because in that definition, pride is simply thinking too much of yourself. And while that's absolutely true, there is a slightly better definition of humility, it's not that we think of ourselves less, but true humility is thinking of God more. That is true humility. Because anything else takes our eyes off of God, right? Because if our thing is to not think of ourselves less, the focus is still on us. And we need to just erase that from our consciousness and instead think of the Lord more. We need to have a correct fixation of our gaze 
on the Lord, right? Jesus said this, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, then all the other things would be added unto you. And so a simple definition of pride is just taking our eyes off the Lord and not seeing him as he is. And the minute we do that, we begin to diminish God in our sight. And that is pride. It's going to have an effect. The minute God is diminished in our sight, we begin to enlarge ourselves and all those around us as being more important than we should consider either ourselves or them. And the longer this lingers, the worse it gets. My favorite example of this is Satan himself, right? Satan tells himself a lie that he passes along to Adam and Eve, and they buy into it. We learn of this in Ezekiel 28. This is the description of Satan's fall and his sin. It says, you were the signet of perfection. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is a description of Satan himself. We have to remember how God created Satan. You were the signet of perfection, God calls him, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, craft. I don't know what half of those things are, by the way. Uh, but he had them. <laughs> and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Notice God says, I placed you. And in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your way from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And we all know what that unrighteousness was. That unrighteousness was pride. Well, what does that pride look like? Well, we're told in Isaiah 14. He says, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Why? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. And those were all bad things. But here is the problem. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. What is unrighteousness? What does pride look like? There it is. Because Satan's description up until that point was true. God said, I'm the one who put you above all the other angels. I'm the one who set you on high. The rest of it was true except for him taking the credit for it. But it was the diminishment of the most high in his eyes. And then he turned around and passed that same lie off to Adam and Eve. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And instead of worshiping God and blessing him for making him as he is with all of those things, he wants to take the credit for lifting himself up, lifting himself above all that God had created. The notion that he somehow was controlling his own destiny. And the same is true of us. To have a diminished view of God is going to automatically lead to an inflated view of ourselves. To not understand, as the Bible teaches, that every good and perfect gift is from above is to not recognize the truth and the reality of what Paul tells us, that what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Do we understand the fullness of that statement? It's absolutely true. You, you may be beautiful and smart and charming, and that's absolutely true for all of you. I have the pleasure of 
engaging with all of you, right? And you may have worked hard on your PhD, but those abilities came from God. Your ability to experience discipline came from the Lord. And, and you may have, have built yourself up in the gym into, into, into an Adonis that everybody can admire. But the fact that you can even walk came from the Lord. And the strength that you have to lift those weights and barbells and train and the endurance to run or whatever it might be was given to you when God breathed, breathed his breath into your lungs. Everything comes from him. You know, it's like my favorite uh, story when God is debating an evolutionist, you know, and he says, if, if, if evolution is true, let me see you create life. And the evolutionist says, no problem, it's going to take some dirt here and we're going to add some energy. And said, God said, no, 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 get your own dirt. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> see, everything comes from the Lord. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we see the deception that Satan has, has planted in the heart of man. We see it come to an extreme. In 2 Thessalonians, we read this about the, the Antichrist that is coming. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Listen to this. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. You know, Satan is crazy, but Satan's not stupid. <laughs> but man is insane. Satan understood that it would be enough to be like God. Man turns around and says, I'm above God. That's insane. <laughs> and that is where pride will lead us. And so true humility is simply keeping our eyes on the Lord, recognizing for who he is, and seeing ourselves in the light of our understanding of who God has revealed himself to be. And to remain humble is not about focusing on how lowly we are. To remain humble, all we need to do is think of God more. And, and, and as the song says, it says that as we, um, you know, as we uh, keep our eyes upon Jesus, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I got news for you guys. We are things of this earth. <laughs> and as we keep our eyes upon Jesus, our own sense of self will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that is what we are intended to do. True humility is having a realistic view of ourselves as presented to us by our God, as he defines us. It's having a biblical lens of ourselves. And Peter says it, clothe yourself in this. In the original Greek, the connotation is not just to put on like clothing, but to gird yourself, to tie it on you as a knot, to secure it upon you. Why? Because the temptations of this world will be to constantly take your eyes off the Lord and put them back on your fellow man or put them back on yourself. And you have to, to tie this on yourself with effort, to restrain yourself from taking your eyes off of the Lord. And then Peter goes on to an additional promise. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, to fully understand this verse, we're gonna do something I, I don't really like to do and I rarely try to do, but I do believe it's enlightening in this circumstance. We're, we're gonna study Greek grammar, okay? And you need to be aware, I've never studied Greek. And so I know as much Greek as Google can teach me. Um, and 
to be generous to myself, grammar was less than my strength when I was going through school. So um, this is not my strong suit, and uh, I assure you I'm a lot more uncomfortable doing this than you guys are. But um, the word here that is translated humble yourself is actually in the aorist imperative passive. Right? Exactly. Did I just clarify everything? <laughs> no. Um, why this is important. Okay, here's the, here's the explanation from a, a website called Corne Workbook, which is the workbook of the New Testament. The command here is in the passive voice. It's not in the active voice. Um, and the meaning, it says, quote, the meaning is somewhat unusual. The meaning of this type of command is not do this. It is have this done to you. So the command here is that it's not our responsibility to humble ourselves. The command is to allow ourselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. And then he will lift you up. It's, it's very similar to what we read in Hebrews 12 too. My son, do not regard lightly, I mean 12, 4, the lightly, the discipline of the Lord. No, be weary when he reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. It's that type of humbling. Allow the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to have its full effect in your life. Allow God to continue to work to him. Surrender and submit to it. And in due time, he will exalt you. And of course, the person writing this is no one other than Peter who had experienced this in his own life. And we see this played out throughout Peter's walk in his time with the Lord. Peter had personally experienced what he is writing about. He has felt the deep chastisement of the Lord. And yet he had felt the Lord restore him and exalt him back to being chief among the apostles. This is Peter's story. And that's what he's sharing with us. We all know how pride led Peter to Peter's fall. Multiple times, not just once, right? Peter was prideful enough to rebuke the Lord himself when Jesus had been explaining to him that he had to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And, and Peter pulls him aside. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, no, come on, Lord. He pulls him aside to correct him. Lord, let this never be. And Jesus had to rebuke him. Right? Get behind me, Satan. You have the things of a man on your mind, not the things of God. We saw the pride of, of Peter play out in false humility as Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. No, Lord, you will never wash my feet. <laughs> right? Don't do that. You're so much higher than me. I know that, Lord. <laughs> and the Lord says, if I don't wash you, you got no part in me. And Peter was humbled again. And then we ultimately see that play out as Jesus is telling them the night before he's crucified what's about to happen. And what's Peter's reaction to the fact that they would all abandon him and leave him as he's taken? Oh, no, Lord. Even if these others, you, oh, my goodness. Even if they abandon you, never me. And Jesus says, Peter, you have no idea what you're saying. Because before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And that's exactly what happens. And so Peter is humbled time and time again. And we see this humbling play out after that denial when Jesus is resurrected. He meets with the disciples, and we read this in John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter how he is going to die. That he's going to be led by others where he does not want to go. And this is Peter being humbled by the Lord. First, Jesus appears to be questioning Peter's love for him. Peter, do you love me? This must have been hurtful in and of itself, right? Why is Jesus singling out Peter from all the other disciples? Jesus had shown himself to the other disciples and Jesus had told them, peace be upon you. Peter had seen this as a reconciliation in his relationship with the Lord. So much so that in this scene in John 21, Jesus comes to the shore, they're out fishing and Peter jumps into the water to go meet the Lord. And here the Lord is questioning him. Peter, do you love me? And not only that, Jesus asks Peter three times as if he is purposely calling out his denial of him. Three times. And it says that Peter was grieved. But note that Peter's response to the Lord is not his normal response. You see, the old Peter would have said, Lord, of course I love you, and a lot more than these guys. What are you even questioning? But notice Peter's appeal in his response. Lord, you know. You know everything. You know my heart. It's as if Peter has turned to the psalmist in 139 and said, search me, Lord, you know me. I, I don't have the words to express my love for you. And Jesus receives that. It may seem like Jesus is chastising Peter, and he is. But note that even as Jesus humbles Peter, what is he doing? He's lifting him up because he has singled him out amongst all the other apostles. He has turned to him and said, you are the one to feed my sheep. You are the rock. Your revelation of me as Savior in Christ, that is the rock upon which I will build my church. And in due time, Jesus is exalting Peter as Peter allows himself to be humbled under the chastening hand of the Lord. And Peter becomes the first spokesman on the day of Pentecost and even after that because God has lifted him up into the place that he intended for him to be. Why? Because he allowed himself to be humbled. And then Peter ends with another promise, casting all of our cares on him because he cares for you. There it is again. See yourself through the eyes of God. Rest upon his promises, the knowledge and the reality that he cares upon you. And all the pride and false humility will fall away. What an acknowledgement by the Lord, by the way, of the source of so much of what builds our false pride. So much of man's appeal to self-confidence and self-esteem is in response to the anxieties we have about our inadequacies. And God gets that. That's why he tells us not to be anxious. We do everything in our minds to, to, to tear down the things that we feel are attacking us, to create a false sense of value when we don't feel the truth of that value. And when that isn't sufficient, what do we do sometimes? We turn our eyes off of ourselves and start tearing down our fellow men and women around us. 
You know, well, I may be whatever, but look at this lowly, no good so-and-so. And those fears and anxieties build up and it causes pride in our hearts, a false sense of being better than those around us. And Peter says, get rid of all that. Lay it down. Pour out your anxieties before the Lord. That feeling that you're unworthy, it's true, by the way. You're unworthy. (laughs) But who cares? (laughs) Because he loves you. That that feeling that, that you have failed time and time again, it's true. We fail every day. But God has forgiven us. Rest in that because he cares for you. That feeling that no one likes you and you aren't being accepted by those around you, okay, because God cares for you and he loves you as you are. But he also loves you too much to leave you as you are. (laughs) So how do we do this though? You know, I mean, it's interesting because this is one of those Christianeses that drive me crazy. Cast all your cares upon the Lord. You hear that and here it is in the Bible itself. How do we do that? How do we cast our cares upon the Lord? By prayer and by spending time in his word. Now, all of you knew I was going to say prayer, right? Because we need to be before the Lord, right? We need to be pouring these things out to him. If we feel inadequate, tell the Lord, Lord God, I'm just feeling inadequate today. I'm feeling empty today. I don't have the strength to even get out of bed. If that's how you feel, tell the Lord. Why? He already knows. Why do we need to tell him? Because he needs to know that we know he knows, (laughs) if you can follow all that, right? God needs us to bring it before him so that when he answers that prayer and you're feeling stronger and you're feeling refreshed, he gets the glory. Because if we give ourselves the glory, the cycle starts all over. Our eyes are back upon ourselves. Take it to the Lord and allow him to relieve those anxieties. But that second part, how does the word of God allow us to cast our cares upon him? Well, simply, because in his word is where we understand and learn who he is. We're not gonna know God. It is the revealed nature of God is his word. Now, it's absolutely true that God will reveal himself to each one of us individually by his spirit. But he does that most often by the implanted word of God as he paints a picture of himself. And I could preach here for four more hours, and I know it's already seemed like four hours, but I could preach here for four more hours, and you know what the reality of it is? Nothing compares to allowing the Holy Spirit to teach you as you go through his word, and he speaks to you individually and personally in a personal revelation of who he is. You have to spend that time with the Lord in his word, and he will open your eyes, and he will show you Christ, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And in doing so, we will discover that we can cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. The nature of God is he is love, and he loves you more than he can, that we can imagine. I was about to say more than he can express, but that's not true, because he expressed it on the cross by allowing his son to die in our stead and taking the punishment of us. And that is the first act of humility that must always happen. That is where the journey begins for each person. That's where we want to end. Because if you're here today and you've never taken that first step of humility, if if you've never 
simply accepted the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, don't leave here today without doing that. And so we're going to pray. And then as we pray, I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes. I'm going to ask you, if you have not taken that act of humility, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hands, acknowledge that need. Let's close our eyes. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to speak to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you for your, your grace which overwhelms us, Father. Your grace that leads us into a greater place of hum- humility. Even as you rebuke and chastise us, Lord God, we recognize, Lord God, that it is out of your great love for us that you see us as your loving children that you're seeking to grow. Father, we want to pray for anybody's heart who may have been stirred by your truth this morning, your love and your grace and your act of kindness to want to take that first step of humility, Father. Would you stir in their hearts to to simply raise their hand now that we can recognize you. If there's anybody here who, who needs that tender touch of the Lord to be forgiven, We're going to have folks up here on the prayer team. I would encourage you to come forward so we can pray for you. But remember his love for you. He cares for you. Cast your anxieties upon him. And we're going to do that for those who come up. I would encourage the prayer team to come up as well as we sing this last song of worship. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for your goodness. We want to lift up our voices now to honor you. In Jesus' name.